This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Kanda Mason's Brown Rice Hour, a podcast that quilts together a fabric of connection between land, race, money, culture, and spirit. Discover a connection that engages with the most inspiring and cutting-edge thought leaders today, pointing toward our collective healing and liberation. If you are interested in supporting the Brown Rice Hour, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Kanda. I'm Conda Mason, and this is the Brown Rice Hour uh, podcast on the Be Here Now Network. And um, the Brown Rice Hour is we have conversations at the intersection of land, race, money, and spirit. And I've had culture in, which, um, I, which I love. And so that's the conversation that we have here on this podcast. And I've been having various guests. And today, this is Elizabeth Keller who um, I will read her bio later, and so you'll get a sense of who this amazing being is. But um, before we jump into that, um, I always like to open up sacred space, if that's okay, and to just have a moment to... That sounds good. Yeah, that sounds good. So Mm -hmm. I like to just take a moment to, um, you know, honor our ancestors, who are those who have um, sacrificed so much for us to be here today doing the work that we're doing. They've paved the way. They've showed us what resilience looks like. And I'm forever grateful for our ancestors. And and then I want to honor those who are coming up behind us, the younger ones, those who are inheriting our work. And may we be worthy of their trust. May we do the right thing and bring a world that's better to them than the one that we received. And so I want to give thanks Amen to that. Time. Yeah. And give thanks for that. Yeah. So that's um, that's that. And so I like to always start by, you know, finding out uh, where you're calling in from and whose land are you on, original um, indigenous land are you on. So where are you calling in from, Elizabeth? I'm calling in from Martha's Vineyard, and this is the land of the Wampanoag. Wampanoag. Martha's Vineyard. I love the vineyard. And um, I am calling in from Oakland. This is the Ohlone land um, originally. And so 
we are going to have a conversation um, and I am really looking forward to it. And I'm going to begin now with um, introducing you to Elizabeth Keller. And she, um, her work is, she's the president of Inglewood Farm in Alexandria, Louisiana. And so I read your bio and I just love what you wrote in your bio. It's so heartfelt and it's so you. Um, so I'm just going to read it. It says, Elizabeth Keller is the president of Inglewood Farm in Alexandria, Louisiana. Inglewood is on land that was once a cotton plantation and has its farming roots in the slave-holding economy. Inglewood has been owned by Elizabeth's family since 1927 when her grandfather, a small-town banker, bought Inglewood Plantation. Home to sharecroppers at the time, Inglewood was purchased as a distressed property, considered to be a good value as a real estate investment during an economic depression. Elizabeth grew up in Arkansas and Mississippi in the 1960s and 70s with frequent family visits to Inglewood. During that period, she saw the farm evolve into the world of industrialized agriculture. The tractors got bigger, the use of chemical fertilizers and pesticides accelerate, and the largely African-American community of workers got smaller. During this period, two questions formed in Elizabeth's mind that have now become the source of her life's work. How will we farm in Louisiana without poisoning the soil? And what will we do to heal the wound of racial injustice that lies at the heart of this place, this region, and this nation? As president of Inglewood, Elizabeth is now committed to a path of healing and repair on the farm. This began with the transition eight years ago to organic and regenerative farming practices. Inglewood has gone from being a conventional commodity crop farm to an all-organic farm that now produces food for the local community. Along with the work of healing the land, Elizabeth has committed to the deeper, more difficult work of healing through racial equity and reparations. This commitment lies at the heart of the partnership she's made with Conda Mason and Jubilee Justice. So, Elizabeth. Yes, Conda. You know a lot <laughs> in that story. That was, that's, that's thick and rich. That is thick and rich. It took me all day. To write that? It took me all day not to write it, but to wrestle it down. Mm. To try to encapsulate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, how I would express it. It's a process. Yeah. What, what, what was your process like in, in, in writing that? What is it that you had to work with? Mm. Well, I think the most difficult part of it was trying to encapsulate where my family entered the story of the land. And it's been part of our story for a long time that we did not own Inglewood during, during the period of slavery mm-hmm. or during the Civil War. Another family owned Inglewood then. And that my family entered the picture through my grandfather later. Hence, there's always been some explicit or implicit way of disconnecting ourselves from the story of slavery Mm -hmm. (laughs) and our role Mm -hmm. in that. And 
Um, so I actually think in some ways maybe that has been a way of protecting ourselves in that story or myself. But really the point where we did enter the story as a family is certainly still entering into the legacy of slavery because it was the era of sharecropping. Right. And what I have not yet looked at, but feel very called to examine, and I'm sure that will happen with other family members as well, is what did it mean that a white man who um, was wealthy by some accounts, but you know, not from the wealthy planter class, could come in and buy that land right. at a bargain? Right. And then begin to make it part of his family legacy that he would pass on to his children and grandchildren. Mm -hmm. And there's as much to work with there Mm. (laughs) in terms of our, where we come in as a family of privilege as there is as if we had entered the story. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, it is unexplored territory by me, but I'm I'm trying to get up to speed and delve in as much it's as been I can. Unexplored by you, you know. You know what I just remembered. Before we do this, before we launch into this juicy story, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. This is a question that I ask everybody that I start this podcast with, and the reason why I started with this is that um, it's about food. Mm-hmm. I think that food tells a big story about yeah. all of us, right? It tells yeah. actually the story of belonging in many ways. Yeah. And so the question that I want to ask you is this. What was your comfort food as a child and who prepared it? Mm. Well, it brings me mo- both delight and sorrow to answer this question. Mm. And I'm just going to go with the image of a meal at Inglewood when I was maybe 10 years old. And I would be out playing during the day and riding horses with my siblings, sometimes my cousins, and with uh, two boys, older boys in particular, African-American who grew up on Inglewood and rode horses with us. And when lunchtime came, my siblings and I would go in to the house on Inglewood called the Big House and sit down to a meal that was called dinner in the middle of the day. And we would have fried chicken and butter beans and iced tea and big glasses of milk, which I actually didn't like, that came from the dairy on Inglewood. (laughs) And... um, That meal was prepared in the Inglewood kitchen by um, a woman, two women, um, Alberta Johnson and Mary Jane Collins, who would serve it to us. And that divide between the big dining room table, which you have sat at, Conda, (laughs) and the kitchen is the divide of my life. Mm. Wow. So around food, 
there was this love of that southern wonderful food that was available to you and yet it was where division was apparent and and prepared by hands of those who did not come and sit at the table with us right and what about the two boys out who they would have gone to their home Mm-hmm. for lunch with their family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And at that age, as a 10-year-old, were you cognizant of this divide as racial? Very, very aware of it in my gut. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not, and and even then, painfully so, but not in a conscious way and without a vocabulary. Mm-hmm. around it. That's taken years for me yeah. to develop. Because yeah. nobody was talking about it at the, at the kitchen table, of course. No, it was very normalized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, so there's that. So was it comfort food or was it discomfort food? Right, right. Well, exactly. <laughs> the fried chicken was comfort. The food fed my soul and troubled my soul. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a deep story. You know, these food questions, every time I ask someone, it brings up something. Yeah. And we learn a lot when you ask, you know, find out about that. When you ask that question, you really learn a lot about, mm-hmm. about you know, belonging. Like I said, it really, and, and not belonging, mm-hmm. food brings up. That's a deep answer to that question, Elizabeth. I never heard that one. Well, mm-hmm. so, you know, in your bio, you speak of um, your partnership with me. And, and as you know, that this podcast is a podcast, uh, Conversations at the Intersection of Land, Race, Money, and Spirit. And so you pointed to it in your, in your bio, and I haven't mentioned it on the podcast, but I have a nonprofit called Jubilee Justice. And Jubilee Justice has these conversations at the intersection of land, race, money, and spirit. And when I was asked to do this podcast, I said, well, I'm having conversations at that intersection, and that's what I'd want to talk about. And they said, sure. And I said, okay, I can do that. And so um, that's what this is about. And the truth is that Meeting you, Elizabeth, and going to Inglewood for the first time is how this theme emerged. I had never been on a plantation before. I never thought that I would be. And because those were the, pa- the conversations that we were having that emerged mm-hmm. on my first trip to Inglewood, land, race, money, spirit. I, again, I think of it as the story of America. You know, and so I'd like to know what that intersection means to you. Like when you think of land, race, money, and spirit, how does that impact you? Well, this may be the reason you and I so immediately connected (laughs) is because those four concepts define my life. And 
and my identity and what I think about and what I pray about. Um, I was raised in a deeply spiritual, religious family with a mother and a father who were both people of rich spiritual lives. And um, I think I inherited (laughs) that from them. And um, I learned from an early age and was taught that owning land was a good thing, that if you have extra resources invested in land that will last you for a lifetime and beyond. It's good to own land. Uh, And then our family did own this land, which we went to, which provided us with um, a feeling of security. Um, From my earliest memories, my life was defined by race. And my understanding that I was white, my family was white, and that people we knew and loved and had close relationships were black and that our lives were forever interwoven. And it raised questions for me from the time I I can remember. Um, and money. (laughs) Um, My family, I always knew, was wealthy. How wealthy, not as wealthy as some, wealthy as wealthier than others, I knew, but that we would always be comfortable Mm -hmm. and that we had access to so many things that people I knew and loved did not just by the fact that we had money. And that all those things are connected. They're all connected. (laughs) They're not in separate boxes. No. Totally interwoven. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, we know that um, the chattel slavery that happened in this country was based on pure economics. Yeah. And... um, free labor that completely spurred the economy of this country from the very beginning and years and years and years of free free labor and so the money and the race and the land was all deeply deeply inter- intertwined and that's how what made America the America that we know in this world as far as being the the riches, I don't know if that's true anymore, richest country in the mm-hmm. world. It was all based on the genocide of indigenous people and their land being taken and the labor of enslaved Africans. And this is true, Conda, and this is not what I was ever taught. And even though all the evidence has been there all along as a white Southerner, certainly not limited to Southerners, but that's what I am. We had other 
stories and of what were um, those stories? Well, if I think even of the story of my grandfather, mm-hmm. um, it is that he acquired what he did by hard work <laughs> and by pulling himself out of difficult circumstances. Right. And that he lost his hand in a cotton gin. And therefore was not able to make a living with his mind and so, or with his hands. And so he determined to make a living using his mind and he educated himself. And it's a wonderful yeah. story. Sure. Um, and therefore was able to go in and buy the land that is Inglewood. And then he bought other land. This could be the subject of another podcast, um, which was discovered to have oil on it. Uh, and so he therefore entered the oil business. Mm. And um, so never was that story connected to being able to go in and buy land that was distressed because it had been a plantation where people had lived enslaved that it was this cotton economy mm-hmm. <laughs> that was driving the global economy mm-hmm. that relied on free labor, including torturing yeah. those laborers. All this I have had to learn as an adult. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that story that you tell about, you know, he worked hard for it, and I'm sure he worked hard. And at the same time, there's that American myth of meritocracy, right? On our yes, own merits yes. is how we get there. And if you're not there, it's because you just haven't worked hard enough. Yeah. As if conditions have nothing to do with it. And it's a myth. It's a big myth and lie that we live here in this country that, you know, the ability to pull yourself up from your bootstraps and you'll make it. And um, that we, and it's just, as you know, not true. Not true. And yeah. But that's that's the story you have too. Yeah. And I think I was taught all along in my family that it was not a level playing field and that it was not a level playing field for Mm African-Americans. We made it that far Mm -hmm. in the story. And therefore, I think I interpreted that as, well, it will just take longer. It'll just take a little bit longer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, eventually they'll just, they'll catch up. (laughs) They'll catch up. It's a gap. (laughs) It's just a little gap. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. And so, um, you know, when I think about um, you, Elizabeth, I, I'm, you know, I know you and I'm aware of some of the interior, like, so the, I think of, I think of this as interior, exterior, right? There's the exterior of the land and turning that into an organic farm, which is beautiful and amazing. And you've cut out, you know, the pesticides are gone, all of that harm to the land. And and then there's the interior part as well. And when I talk about interior, I'm thinking about you and your process mm-hmm. and what your interior process has been. And I know that you've been on this road of repair, 
like you said, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. To repair what has happened to the land and to the people and to our social systems of race. I'm curious about your process. Like, when did it occur to you and how did it occur? Did something happen where you, or was it a gradual, just knowing that you need to turn this story around, you need to turn this land around, you have a role to play in turning Mm -hmm. this around, this legacy. How did that develop in you and when? It's been very gradual, Conda. And I think I know the moment when it started, which is when I was 22 years old. So it's been a long road because I'm now almost 63. But um, I was actually living in Kenya when I graduated from college and living in a village and teaching in a school. And my parents sent me a telegram um, asking me to come back to the U.S. to help out on Inglewood because my sister who was living there and still lives there um, and had a family, her husband was the manager of Inglewood and he had been diagnosed with terminal cancer. So we had this very sad thing happen in our family and I was the available family member to come and help out on the farm. And uh, my sister was pregnant at the time and um, it wasn't long before I was actually working on Inglewood and I had to learn how to calibrate the tractors and load them up with chemicals to spray the pesticides and herbicides. And I remember standing, um, loading the trefland <laughs> into the tank on the tractor and the foreman of our farm, an African-American man, the father of the two boys I mentioned earlier who taught me how to ride horses. His name was L.V. Eli. He went by the name B-Boy. And um, he was helping me figure this out and we were doing it together. And... I remember just this moment thinking, we can't keep doing this. None of this can continue. And I thought, I don't, but I don't know how we'll ever do it differently. (laughs) And I went on to go out and learn how to spray the chemicals and to sell them. We were still raising cotton at the time, sell the cotton on the futures market and all of that. But the seed was planted. What is this environmental degradation we are participating in? What is this? (laughs) Even me, Conda, I was named the manager of Inglewood when my brother-in-law passed away, I was a 22-year-old white girl with an English major from a liberal arts college. And suddenly I was the authority over this man in particular who had so much more knowledge and experience and had lived on Inglewood and I was his boss. And um, that was so confusing to me and yet I stepped in that role for that period in my life and 
I left Inglewood a year later and went to divinity school. <laughs> um, and my sister became the manager for many years. But the questions were too big for me at that time. Mm. Everything felt so wrong about that situation. And yet it gave me this, the seeds of the questions. Mm-hmm. And when I was 50 years old, I had actually gone to divinity school and then on to nursing school and become a nurse midwife. I worked in public health for many years as a nurse midwife. And around the time I turned 50, for various reasons, my family came to me and asked if I would take a leadership role in our family over what had become a family company created by my mother. And she had put the farm into that company. Mm. Um, And other assets as well. And I remember thinking, I don't have the business experience to do this. However, as long as Inglewood has been put into this family company, I want to take it on. I want to take on a leadership role because I believe there is a future there and an opportunity for us as a family to really figure out what the future of this place is. And I want to do it and I want to find the courage to do it. And I want to go after the big questions here. So that was the second turning point. Mm -hmm. And figuring out how to make it an organic farm that was the low-hanging fruit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Figuring out how to address the issues of our family and race and inequity and love. <laughs> Those are the bigger questions. And I knew I couldn't do it alone. I, I, I would sit alone and pull my hair out. How will I ever do this? And I would just pray. I would just pray that I would find a way to take this on. And um, my father once said, or maybe said it many times, you know, once the way prayer works is, all I know is if you stop praying, coincidences stop happening. (laughs) (laughs) I think he put it as a negative. And it's not cause and effect. It's just yeah, yeah. And I just prayed that the people would show up to be my companions in uh, on the path with Inglewood. And I couldn't imagine who they would ever be. And I just have to tell you, Conda, that my experience of you is that you are the answer to that prayer. Hmm. Really? I could never have made you up in my mind or of (laughs) what you brought to me. And um, Hmm. I can't go it, I can't go it alone. And there are many others, as you and I know, (laughs) who are part of this ongoing story within my family, outside my family and in the community of Alexandria. But yeah, I, I, um, wow. That's really huge for me to take in and to hear and to know that, um, you know, uh, 
it began just so people have a sense of of this. It's too much to really talk a lot about, but it began with um, in a white van and Elizabeth being picked up at uh, San Francisco airport on going on this journey together with some people. And she sat next to me. And Elizabeth sat right next to me, and I didn't know you from anyone, and we started talking. And we had a long drive, and the conversation started winding into this plantation in Louisiana that you and your family owned. And I had never been on a plantation. I had never wanted to be on a plantation. Um, I was... I don't even know what the emotion was. It felt like, oh, God, this white woman owns a plantation that's sitting next to me. And as we talked, and we spent a couple of days together, it became clear that I was supposed to go to that plantation and that we were to do some work together. Because you were on a serious inquiry, Elizabeth. Your inquiry was so deep. And you were soliciting. You were soliciting. You were inviting people in to, um, to help take, shine a light on what the next steps are. Mm-hmm. And somehow I heard it and felt you And we ended up having what we call a journey of the group of people that were in the van, a similar journey at the plantation. And that's where the conversations of land, race, money, and spirit began. Well, and I never could have done that without you because we talk about Southern hospitality. But when you own a place and a house that was a plantation, only certain people feel welcome there. And it's a pretty narrow group of people. Yeah. And it's certainly not, well, I can assume anyone who's African-American either doesn't want to come at all or has a lot of feelings. Yeah. (laughs) And I, we knew this group would be, um, would be people from different cultural, religious, racial <laughs> groups. And how would they ever feel welcome right. in that house and on that place? Right. And um, you, uh, how could I show up as a host? And you said, you can do it. We can do it. <laughs> it's going to be, because you had so gonna much be shame. Fine. You had so much yeah. shame. You had so much shame. You're like, I'm, I can't do this. And I was like, you can do it. We're going to do this together. Mm-hmm. And um, it was quite a process for us working together, cross race, cross class, cross geography, me from California, and us coming together to do that first journey that was also cross race, cross class, cross geography for three days. And most of the black people that were there had never been on a plantation before either. 
And when we told him it was a plantation, had to take a, had to swallow. Yeah. And and pretty much did it because they were friends and trusted me to come. And it was beyond transformational. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was for me. Yeah, for all of us. And it began this journey that we're on together. So Elizabeth and I are partners together now in... Um, projects that are happening there at Inglewood. And um, it's been a journey for me too. I have been through so much um, being a part of you and your family and the, the place and, and your, your quest for reparations. Mm-hmm. Your quest for reparations. And what does that look like? Yeah. And what does that look like? I mean, I know that, you know, folks think that it's, um, well, you know, you've got all this land and I know black folks around me say, you know, when's you going to give up that land? When's you going to give up that land to black folk? That's what needs mm-hmm. to happen. Mm-hmm. And I know it's complicated. I know it's complicated because if it were up to you, that would happen. I know that there's about 22 others or 21 other folks and, and it's a family. Can you just talk about, I think that there are probably, you happen to have land, you happen to have this explantation. There are people, white folks out here listening to this who have other wealth that is surrounded by, you know, by gatekeepers, really, or by people who, um, mm-hmm. who have the inclination, people who may have that inclination of, of some type of reparations, and yet um, it's not just up to them. And it's interesting to hear um, how that's being, how you, how you live in that, how you navigate that. Mm, so much to that question. And you said it's complicated, but I don't want to overcomplicate it. Because yeah. <laughs> sometimes that can just be a screen, yeah. I think. Um, I... And I don't want to overstate what I would be willing to do, Conda, as if I'm more generous or evolved or whatever it is than anyone else in my family, because mm-hmm. I actually, mm-hmm. I don't think that's true. Mm-hmm. But, um, so I'm going to keep this, I'm going to try to actually speak personally. Okay. Um, it, and I think of all the monuments, you know, now being torn down and it helps me to think about the monuments in my own mind and my own history and sense of myself that Mm. are being dismantled. Mm -hmm. And there is that monument and that teaching that says buy land and buy real estate and hold on to it. And that's where value lies and pass that to your children and and your grandchildren and it's not that that's a bad thing, I think. Um, you know, you and I now have the occasion to be working with black farmers in Mississippi, mm-hmm. whom I haven't even been able to meet yet, but we know 
this is what we want for black farmers. We want for everyone to have some land. Or maybe if we were indigenous, none of us would want to own land, you know, so that opens up other questions. But let's just assume it's okay to own land. And steward is what I like to say as well, or stewarding the land. Yeah. Yeah, so it's not necessarily a problem that we own it. It's a problem that, I guess the question for me is, how much do we need right. <laughs> and what is out of balance here? What is way out of balance here? Right. And if I know and believe that it's good to have land you can call your own and to have a sense of place, then having the spiritual grounding that I do, why would I not want that for everyone? And why would I not want that for others for whom that opportunity has been denied? To me, that's the question mm-hmm. I'm wrestling with. Mm-hmm. And what opportunity, what gift is there? Mm-hmm. And the land that was passed to me, my nieces and nephews, and to my children, to, to take that and break it open. Mm-hmm. so that it is bountiful for others as well. And uh, so I guess that's how I think about it. And what does it mean if we have this legacy on land where people were enslaved, where people that even I knew in my lifetime had been sharecroppers, mm-hmm. people we respected and loved who grew up on that land, Um, and knowing in our bones the inequity of it, what opportunity is there for us to repair that? To the harm that others experienced and to the harm that we experience in ourselves by knowing what wasn't fair about it. So the work of reparations is also repair Mm -hmm. of my of my own soul and spirit. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. And because I think that um, when we think about reparations, there's this sense that, okay, just give them money or give them mm-hmm. land or give them something material then let it be done. But what you pointed to is exactly it, is that there is this as I say, this cognitive dissonance that exists within the white psyche and the white experience of knowing that there's an abundance over here and lack over here. Mm-hmm. Right. And what is enough? And what am I, and as I feel it, want it differently? And yet know that, am I actually participating in making it different? Yeah. Right? And, and having that, that dissonance between knowing and not acting, not fully, not acting in a way that um, is going to make the kinds of transformation that we need. And so one of the things that I think about with you, Elizabeth, I... I know that particularly right now in America with all um, 
this environment that we're in after the murder of Mr. Floyd. And, you know, America, white America, um, waking up more, you know. And, you know, a lot of my peeps are saying, you know, we've been saying this all the time. What, what, what took so long, y'all? Um, yeah. But it's like, right? And, and yet we have this moment. We have this moment. And I think that people even listen to this podcast, which is a primarily white audience, um, probably 90 some percent, I would say. I hope that with me here and who's watching me, we'll get some black folks and brown folks watching. But um, I know that there are people who are saying, oh, man, I'm really, you know, wanting to do something. And what do I do? What do I do? And. One of the things that I've been saying, Elizabeth, is why don't we flip that question? And my question is, what do you need to stop doing? Yeah. What do you need to stop doing? Because what you're doing is upholding this structure and the status quo. Yeah. And this institutions and this institutionalized racism and white supremacy. So the question is, what do you need to stop doing? And so I think that if you really penetrate that question, you look at your life and say, okay, what have I been doing to to uphold it? So I guess I would like to ask you, what have you stopped doing? Mm. Or working on stopping doing? Well, it's a process every day. <laughs> I wake up every day and co- and commit <laughs> and try again and try again to stop doing. But I think the biggest thing is to stop pretending there's not something terribly wrong here for me. <laughs> Um, and to stop feeling afraid to just say some simple truths. I'm really uncomfortable with this. I'm pained by this. Um, it, it kind of starts with just the simple truths that I think sometimes children <laughs> are better at stating. <laughs> Um, so I want to stop doing that to stop pretending I, I feel okay. Mm -hmm. And I can, I can live with this Mm -hmm. injustice, this inequity within my own situation. I want to stop saying I can do it. Yeah. So it starts with stop. Yeah. Stop pretending and tell the truth. And that's why truth telling is at the core, storytelling is always at the core of everything, you know, yeah. that, that is meaningful. You know, they say that the human beings are not made up of atoms, but we're made up of stories. Mm-hmm. And the storytelling and truth-telling is critical. I mean, when I think about the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that happened in South Africa during apartheid, after apartheid, um, that commission, as flawed as it has been, and even post, I can't even imagine what would have happened to South Africa without it. Right. It would have been a complete blood bloodbath. And in this country, 
We have never, ever told the truth. We have never reconciled. We have never even attempted. As a matter of fact, it's always been since I've been in, on the planet here for a few 60-some years, it's been don't bring up the race card. You're bringing up the race card or whatever it might be. And really white folks hiding from the truth. Truth telling has got to start. And I'm so happy that that's yeah. what you said, that stop pretending that it's not true. And I yeah, stop pretending it's not. Yeah, stop pretending that it's not about race. Right. About <laughs> race. Exactly. Stop pretending it's not about race. Yeah. It's about race. <laughs> Straight up, it's about race. It is. Right? And you know what I loved is that from the very beginning, you said, I'm white. Do you know white people don't claim being white? It's like when they think of race, they think of other people, black people, brown people. But to actually claim being white is the first step that you also, there's a race there that whether we know, we actually know that race is a construct and it yeah. has real implications in the world that we live in. It's everything. It is everything. It is. And to first say I'm white as a white person is a big step for most people. I mean, that, I don't know if it sounds like it to you, but I probably feel, sound like, what are you saying? Because you've been saying that for a long time. But what I'm finding is that white people don't want to, they don't, they think of race as that over there. And it's so interesting because it is the one thing that's denied that is where all the benefit comes. Yeah. I'm as white as white can be. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm as black as black can be. <laughs> Do you know, uh, one thing, I'm, I'm grateful to my parents for many things with all their blind spots. Um, and Lord knows what my children will say my blind spots were, but... In the era of desegregation of the public schools, my parents, when they started desegregating the public schools in Arkansas, where I lived, my parents took me out of private school to go to public school because they said it was not good as a white family that we not participate in that once the schools became desegregated. And so I rode a bus across town in Little Rock, Arkansas, and ended up going to Central High School. Oh, wow. Which had, in that era, this was not the 1950s, it was the mm -hmm. 1970s, it had right. become, you know, maybe a 98% all right. black school. Really? So, yes, yes. And so my white neighborhood was suddenly being bussed, and many of the families uh, started sending their kids to private school and to even segregation academies. And um, going to Central High School is one of the greatest gifts my parents ever gave me. Because I was supposed to go off to boarding school in New England. And they said, wow. nope. Wow. And, and you were a minority um, there. You were, you were a minority. No, it was actually... Uh, became like pretty 50-50. 50-50 during that time. 50-50. And uh, kids from another white part of town also came. So it was this mixing of race and mixing of different white classes mm -hmm. as well. And none of us knew how to make it work. But it, 
I think for those in my class at Central White and Black, most look back on that time as pretty idyllic hmm. in our formation. And um, it's before the line started hardening again, and we knew we were part of this grand experiment, but mm-hmm. because we didn't know how to deal with coming together, we had a white homecoming queen and a black homecoming queen. Oh, interesting. Really? <laughs> yes. And there was okay. like, uh, you know, uh, that was in the days of the yearbook where you had like, a, we were the Central High Tigers, the Tiger Beauty. And we had a white Tiger Beauty and a black Tiger Beauty. <laughs> <laughs> I Which, you know, a couple of years later, everyone figured out, this really isn't a good idea. <laughs> but what there, no one was under the illusion, right. you know, right. I'm white and, and you're black. Mm-hmm. And um, there was something about the truth in that. Well, we don't yet know how to mix or figure this out. And right, so we'll just keep that's how separate. we did it. <laughs> right, exactly. Interesting, interesting. <laughs> Do you still have any friends from that era that you still are in touch with? I do. You do? I do. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Very, very proud alum of that school mm-hmm. and of that era. Yeah. Wow. I love it. You know, I, 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 I want to say something that you said to me the other day. Um, we were just talking and uh, we were probably on on Zoom Um, And we were talking and you said something that I thought was interesting. You said you 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 said a quote that your sister, I think probably Catherine, um, says that kindly white people have done a lot of bad things. Yeah, that was actually my sister, Cindy. Okay, okay. Um, And so kindly white people have done a lot of bad things. Yeah. And what that brings up to me is asking you. Because people, I think a lot of white people who are, you know, I don't know where they are on the journey, but thinking, well, if I just be kind to, to folks, that will, that, you know, that's what I just need to do. And kindness goes a long way. Absolutely, y'all need to be kind. But being kind and being anti-racist are two very different things. And yeah. I'm wondering if, I feel, Elizabeth, that you have a lot to teach other white folks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I would like to... Um, kind of wrap this conversation now around that question around being kind and being mm-hmm. anti-racist yeah. and the difference. And if there's any wisdom that you can impart on your white brothers and sisters, <laughs> <laughs> I would so appreciate it because <laughs> I'm running into all kinds of stuff that I wish were like, okay, y'all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what my sister was saying was... What's been so hard for us to learn and accept, and it's a moment of awakening for us. We were raised to be good, kindly, well-meaning, well-intentioned, white, progressive people in my family. Right. And what she said was it was so stark and painful for her to suddenly realize that she and we participate in white supremacy. Right. That's just like, but no, we're good. We're, we, we participated in desegregation. Mm -hmm. 
you know, we, my father wanted to pay a living wage on Inglewood Mm -hmm. to the African American workers. They were Mm -hmm. treated as, you know, (laughs) people that we know and love and respect. Like that was good. And yet, and yet, and yet, we have participated in a system with our blinders on protecting ourselves from seeing and acknowledging the terrible harm that has been done with our participation. And I come from a religion where we talk about sin. And being from a progressive uh, family in the Episcopal Church, we actually didn't talk too much about sin, but this is sin. We have participated in in this evil and have benefited from it. And I also come from a religious um, from a religious tradition where we know we are also forgiven and we we are redeemed and we participate fully in that. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm able to have this conversation. I know I will be okay and that I am fully loved, but we've got to name the sins and the evil. We've been living right in the heart of it. And it's all about race. Yeah. Hmm. That's why I love you, Elizabeth. So special. You've um, really brought a lot to my life. And um, just a little bit about um, we're working on a project with black farmers and um, increasing their thrivability as the discrimination that is so prevalent and that we see in urban America is like even double down, triple down, quadruple down on black farmers in, in rural America. And so we have this project, Jubilee Justice, that is working to to try to make a dent in that. And um, it's just been an incredible partnership with you to do this work together? Well, it's a joy for me and such a gift of grace, Kanda, to experience your love Mm -hmm. for me Mm -hmm. and to be accepted by you and so fully accepted and loved by you and to also know you will always speak the truth to me and that we can grapple with these hard truths together. And then with me bringing in that baggage that I do um, and to be able to be on this path with you together, this is what I was taught and has always known what love looks like when it's fully manifested. 
So we can do this hard stuff. We can do this hard stuff. We can do this hard stuff. And it takes um, more than just wanting it to be, but actually doing the work. I mean, you have been doing the work in terms of, you know, I mean, I remember when we met, I forget what book you were reading, but it was like, you know, you're constantly <laughs> in this workshop, you're in this self-workshop <laughs> around race and privilege and it's not, and it's ongoing and that's the thing, that's the thing, isn't it? It is a lifetime. Every day, every day. Every day. And as we many have said, this pandemic with all the terrible suffering that it is causing and the cost of it to so many, including their lives. It's enabled us or, or, or prevented me from straying to distractions. <clears throat> and as you said, with the death of Mr. Floyd and the uprising that's happening in the streets and in businesses. It's just full attention. It's full on. And I feel like I'm, I'm here for that. Yeah. And I can't get on an airplane and go somewhere to a conference and no distractions. No, this is it. This is it. We're, this we're, is the work. That's right. This is the work. And thank God for the pandemic for that reason. That's the upside. And I'm not at all saying I know that the deaths and, and I'm just shattered by it. Shattered. And I don't even want to talk about that, what's going on with that. And, you know, yeah. that man that's doing nothing about it, but making it worse. But I know that the silver lining is that we were all still. We were more quiet. Life slowed down. Things became still. Our hearts were more open. We've been honoring life. We've been honoring our own lives, trying to stay alive. Yeah. We've been honoring those in the front lines, the, the medical workers who are saving lives. We're looking at life as precious in this moment. And then the knee on the neck that takes the life out of Mr. Floyd. Yeah. It was a perfect storm because, again, honestly, it was just another black man killed by a white cop. And thank God that that is not all because every single one that that has happened to, you know, I trust that they did not die in vain and that this moment is about them. Yeah. And that we are finally paying attention, white America is finally seeing what it's like to live black in America. And we've got to sustain that. Yeah. Yeah. So I just honor you, Elizabeth, in the work that you're committed to this path and um, all the, the beautiful people that surround you and that beautiful land and May it be healed and it's healing. I know that land and that land is, that land is seen a lot. Inglewood is seen a lot. And there's a healing desire and energy on that land too. And we see it. We see it in the crops that we're growing right now. That is yeah. saying, it's saying, do this. This is what I want to do. This is what I'm here to do. This is what I'm really here to do. <laughs> 
And so I appreciate the work that you're committed to and that you're standing for. So with that, we're going to wrap our conversation. Is there anything else that you would like to say? Well, thanks for for giving me the chance to have this conversation and all the conversations that we've had because they are difficult. (laughs) And they are also so life-giving for me and so healing for me to be able to talk about these things and to feel like I got it wrong and then to just keep trying. So thank you for giving me the invitation to talk and to listen. Always. I think that's our thing. We're going to be talking and we're going to be listening to each other for a long time. We are. (laughs) As long as we are on this planet. So with that, I'm going to wrap up this incredible conversation with Elizabeth Keller. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's not like you have a website or anything. Is there anything? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. You're just out there on the farm doing your thing. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well... Thank you, Elizabeth, and thank you, everyone, for watching. I hope uh, you've enjoyed this as much as I have. Again, this is Conda Mason with the Brown Rice Hour um, conversations at the intersection of land, race, money, and spirit and culture. And we hope to um, see you again. So thanks so much and uh, blessings to everyone. Thanks, Conda. All right. Blessings. Bye-bye. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.